the idea that you have your entire genome done as soon as possible in your lifespan and have that available to help you with choices around drugs, choices around polygenic risk scores, choices around disease, that sort of information is very exciting. You're looking across the person, not only at rheumatic disease, not only at cardiology. And so that to me is a really exciting pivot that's undergoing. We're not leaving any of those behind. It just means that we have to be able to apply it more broadly. And that's exciting to me. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss genomics research and how new discoveries are shaping our understanding of science and nature. I'm your host, Andrew Hinton. Patients can vary considerably in their response to drugs, and a significant amount of that variability has been attributed to genetic factors. In today's episode, we talk with Howard McLeod, a leading authority on the use of pharmacogenomics. Pharmacogenomics is the study of how a person's genetic makeup affects his or her response to drugs. This relatively new field combines pharmacology and genomics in order to understand the genetic basis of both drug toxicity and drug efficacy. In some situations, there can be unexpected adverse drug reactions, which are a significant cause of hospital admissions and a leading cause of in-hospital mortality. So a better understanding of the genetic factors that affect drug toxicity can help to differentiate which drugs are safe for individual patients. In many areas of medicine, there's less data available on the genetic basis of drug efficacy beyond the expectation that only a portion of a given population will benefit from a given medication. Therefore, a better understanding of the genetic basis of variable drug response can also be used as a tool to stratify responders from non-responders. Let's listen in as Howard shares some knowledge of how pharmacogenomics has been or can be used to guide the development or implementation of effective and safe medications tailored to a person's genome. Welcome to Howard McLeod. Thank you for joining us on the Genomics Podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. Start us off by giving a little bit of your background and how you ended up working in the field of pharmacogenomics. Uh, first got a degree in pharmacy, and then after that, uh, some clinical pharmacology training. And so I, I knew that there would be some things that would be definitely important and some things that would not be important in, in medicine. One of the things I thought would definitely never be important is the genome. I thought that was just uh, you know something that wouldn't be relevant. And of course, very soon into my training, I uh, had uh, a little girl who nearly died from the therapy for her leukemia. And that little girl, as we dug into why she had such a horrific outcome compared to many of the other people, we found a genomic basis. And then it happened again with a, an adult who was receiving chemotherapy, found the genomic basis. And I realized, okay, the genome is something, and I better pay attention to it. I might be generalizing a bit, but for those who are not directly involved in the drug development pipeline, pharmacogenomics might be a somewhat vague concept. And until recently, when I heard the term, I would simply think of R&D at a drug company, but I didn't think as much of it playing a role in the clinic. So before we get into some of the details, I was hoping you could describe the scope of what it covers in the clinical realm. So pharmacogenomics is really the, the collision between a medication and the genome. Knowing about the genome can be important for choosing a therapy during drug development, can be important for choosing a therapy in the clinic. It might be as simple as understanding what dose of a medicine, or it might be as, as complex as deciding whether a high-tech 
difficult to administer medicine is given to someone or whether an alternate is, is decided. And so we have examples where extreme toxicity can be detected ahead of time because of the genome of ways that we can try to choose from amongst a number of different therapeutic options in the clinic. And then on the outside, it's also thinking about the policy pieces of it. How do we use the genome to understand when you should use a generic medicine versus a branded medicine with differences in cost and access for those things? So it certainly is important for drug development, but it's also important clinically for drug safety and for choosing the most effective drug. Outside of cancer, what are the main areas of healthcare that would be most impacted by the implementation of pharmacogenomics? So it's important to think about how many genomes an individual patient has. You know, often we're thinking about the genome as a thing. If a patient has cancer, there's the cancer cells having a different genomic constitution than the normal cells. And of course, these normal cells are where the toxicity occurs. The liver is a normal cell, as are some of these other factors. So you have a number of genomes that can be important. As you apply them, certainly the tumor genome, it's understandable that you can choose therapies based on that. But we're now seeing genomics used in a number of other areas for choosing antidepressants in mental health, for choosing antipsychotics also in the mental health area, for pain control, trying to decide whether one goes on an opiate medicine, and if so, which one, in the areas like solid organ transplantation, trying to pick out what is the dose of immunosuppressant that we need to give this kidney transplant patient from day one. So we know which dose to give prior to the transplant can go straight in with the right dose, as opposed to what has been, and still is in many cases, a very much a fishing expedition. We start somewhere, we then try to adapt to it, and we try to make sure we get to the right therapeutic dose before we harm someone, but that's not always the case. And so it's allowing some precision to come in in many different areas of medicine. So how do genes affect drug metabolism, and can one gene affect more than one drug? Yes. So most medications are administered in the body, as are most of anything. Most nutrients that you eat from a vegetable are broken down in the liver. And so a drug metabolizing enzyme is typically a enzyme that is found in the liver. It's also sometimes called a P450 based on some of its protein characteristics. And these enzymes are responsible for taking a molecule, clipping off a hydroxy group or adding a methyl group, and the end result is something that could be more easily eliminated from the body, either through the biliary tree or through renal excretion. And so this idea that we have these, these enzymes and they can affect certain medications has been known for quite some time. What we find is there are some of these, these uh, drug metabolizing enzymes that really we've only found one or two drugs they seem to affect. And so they're, they're fairly narrow in their application. And then there are others where they affect many different drugs. So for example, uh, there's one protein in the liver that affects about 25% of, of all of the FDA-approved drugs that are currently available in the United States and available in most parts of the world. That's an example where understanding the status of drug metabolizing enzyme will give you some insight into a, a quarter of all medicines available for treating disease, whereas other ones, it's very narrow in scope. So when we discuss pharmacogenomics, what range of biomarkers are we talking about? How many genes are typically included in interrogation of what you have referred to as metabolizer phenotypes? For the metabolizing genes, you typically have up somewhere around 8 to 10 different genes that are involved. And those include 
the so-called P450s, as I mentioned before, as well as some of the other metabolizing genes, such as the uh, UGT family, as it's known. These are the main genes that will metabolize drugs from an active to an inactive product, or in rare cases, from a, a pro-drug, a, a less active product, into a more active product. So for example, codeine, which is a, uh, a, a medicine that can be used for pain, doesn't have very much activity by itself until it's metabolized to morphine. And so there are other medications like that that need to be activated by these enzymes. You also have transporter proteins, uh, so genes that encode these proteins that bring the drug from the stomach into the bloodstream or take them from the bloodstream out into the kidney to get rid of them. Those are certainly important. And so if you look at, at pharmacogenomics more broadly, we're typically looking at a panel of, of somewhere between 30 and 40 different genes that will have impact on either the absorption, distribution, metabolism, or excretion of a medicine. And in some cases, they might also be the target of the medicine and will influence the outcome based on that. Discuss the impact that FDA guidance has had on clinical practice. And specifically, where does the data for adverse drug reactions primarily come from in regards to what might be recommended and or implemented in the clinic? The FDA has an unusual relationship with clinical medicine. It has a, a big impact in that it, with the drug company, will write the package inserts, the, the do, uh, drug administration section, the information on the pharmacology of the drug, the dosing, different features that are important for the medication will come out of the FDA. A lot of the information that's in your, your drug app that you might have on your phone for trying to decide which drug at which dose, et cetera, will come from FDA guidance. But it is not allowed by congressional mandate to practice medicine. It's not allowed to interfere with the practice of medicine. And therefore, it has a line that it tries not to cross in order to allowing practice to occur. And so that's a, a balance that, that it must take. You see important data coming from the FDA where they've found a, a particular gene will be associated with an adverse event. And so they'll write that into the prescribing recommendations, the package insert. They may even put a so-called black box on the, the package insert. And that's given extra warning that in patients with these particular genotypes, you need to use caution with using this medicine, or in some cases, avoid it altogether. But a lot of the adverse drug reaction data will come from the literature. It'll come from the insurance companies only paying for certain indications. The national guidelines from either societies or other learned groups will influence this. And so the FDA has a role, but it also is not the only one trying to optimize uh, drug safety. You mentioned a few societies. So I was wondering, outside of the FDA, who are the organizations that are influencing guidance for implementation? The biggest one is a consortium that goes by the fancy name of CPIC, Clinical Pharmacogenomics Implementation Consortium, is uh, what CPIC stands for. This is a group of people from about 40 different countries. There's several hundred uh, people that are involved, very active in the US and Europe and in Asia, some other countries, as, some other continents as well. You see input from these different bodies to ask the question, if someone had genetic information, should you act on it in terms of drug therapy? And so it's not telling you whether you should order a test in the first place, but rather if you had a whole genome done or if you had a whole exome done and you had these results, what should you do? Or if you had a pharmacogenomics test done, what should you do? And so it gives some pretty clear guidance on what genes, 
what genomic variants, what other features uh, should be used in, in terms of clinical practice. You have similar societies available. The Dutch have their own group. The French have their own group. There's several groups in Asia, one group down in South America, all trying to put together some rules, if you will, to give guidance to clinicians as they're going forward. And then many professional societies have looked at their specific area and had some sort of comment. So for example, the, the American Rheumatology Association had some specific comment on the use of some of the HLA markers for giving allopurinol uh, therapy. They didn't comment on any of the other pharmacogenomics because it wasn't really in their scope of practice, but they did comment on this specific area. And we've seen the same thing with the American Heart Association, some of the pulmonary associations, et cetera. Some of the pediatric-focused associations have also weighed in. And of course, the American Psychiatric Association and some international psychiatric associations have also weighed in on the use of pharmacogenetics in mental health disease. And so you see this blurring of lines, but a really nice collaboration between something like CPIC, which goes across all areas of medicine, as well as the individual societies that might be having an impact on just a narrow slice of the diseases that are out there. In a review you published earlier this year, you described the implementation of pharmacogenomic information into the clinical flow of medicine as a low-hanging fruit, but then immediately commented further to say a number of barriers need to be overcome in order to routinely use pharmacogenomic variant data in improving drug prescribing. Could you expand on each of those statements? Certainly. So one of the reasons why I feel that pharmacogenomics is a so-called low-hanging fruit in the scope of some other genomic applications, is that we already have a drug safety mechanism that's in use on a daily basis. So if you go to a practitioner, you'll have a, a medication review that'll be done. There'll be some software already in place in electronic medical record to look at drug-drug interactions, maybe drug-allergy interactions, a few things like that. And so the concept of trying to understand a patient's level of risk and apply it on a routine basis is already in place. It's just a case of needing to now layer in the pharmacogenomics aspect of it. It won't really change the workflow. It'll just be additional signals that would come in through that same role. That is also the heavy lifting. That's also the barriers that are there. So our electronic medical records are primarily systems that were designed for scheduling and for billing purposes. And so we try to use them for the practice of medicine, but they are not really ready to do most of the things we need. We can store information. We can take a pharmacogenomic panel. That data can be stored as a PDF somewhere within the electronic medical record. But it's very difficult to then have decision support actively tell a prescriber, don't prescribe this medicine. Instead, use this other one. Or don't use this dose, use the other dose. That sort of thing is the heavy lift. And so the pathway is there. It's just a case of now needing to figure out how to construct it so that this data can be routinely available and can be applied very readily. This is not the kind of data you want anyone thinking a lot about. This is the kind of data you want sitting there as a safety net, ready to help the patient just when they need it. And so that is still a case where some heavy lifting is required. Historically, pharmacogenomics has been used for single gene, single drug interactions, and from what I understand, that's still how much of it is reimbursed to this day. So what would it take for us to move to polypharmacy medication management of comorbid patients? We're at a time when there is an inflection happening, and, and thankfully, it took a long time for this. 
What we're certainly seeing now is that several of the insurance companies, United Health, as well as Palmetto Health, one of the CMS Max, they are now looking at if you have certain indications and you have a larger panel done, you'll be reimbursed in a, in a higher rate. Whereas if you don't have these particular disease indications or you have a smaller panel, you either won't be reimbursed at all or it'll be at a, at a much smaller reimbursement rate. So this change in reimbursement based on the panel size and the clinical indications is certainly making a difference. We still have a ways to go before insurance companies and other payers really understand the value of preemptive testing. You know, the idea that you could spend the same amount of money to have a whole array of tests, excuse the pun, for an individual patient, and then be able to use that as needed on a just-in-time basis is still escaping many of the insurance companies. First of all, they're not used to preventive-type services. Secondly, they're a little bit wary that they're going to pay for something and then the patient will move to a different carrier and uh, they'll lose the value from there. But we're now seeing employers and other groups understanding, wait a minute, we can offer this as a benefit. This could be something that our patients can use, our employees can use. It might be a reason why they stay with our company. It certainly is a reason why we can save some costs for the individual uh, folks. And so we're seeing a little bit of a shift where as insurance companies are coming in and starting to pay, but also employers and other, especially the self-insured are starting to realize, wait a minute, we need this safety net if we're going to keep our employees happy. Are there any examples of health systems or nationalized precision healthcare programs that you find particularly exciting? And what can other health systems or nations learn from them? From a national level, the country that I, th I think has done things the best is the Netherlands. They've implemented pharmacogenomics in a broad way, but they've done it with really the input from a number of different levels of practitioner. So in the U.S., it tends to be one group will decide that it's important and try to convince the rest of them. In the Netherlands, they have the general physicians, the specialist physicians, the pharmacists, the pathologists, all these different aspects of medicine all were pulled in to design an approach that can be going forward. So it didn't take uh, an individual champion saying, all right, let's do this for rheumatology. It was a case where they said, all right, we're going to go ahead and implement this broadly. Now, that is a smallish country, very different from a country like the United States. We don't have the type of infrastructure. We don't have a ministry of health. So we don't have this kind of top-down approach where we could do this for the entire U.S. It can be influenced strongly by the insurance companies, et cetera, the FDA, but it's not going to be a, a situation like the Netherlands has. In the U.S., we've seen a number of really strong examples going forward. The uh, Intermountain Healthcare is a uh, health system. I think it's from like maybe basically Las Vegas up till uh, up into Idaho, and about thirty different hospitals that are that are present there. And so that's a system where they've now more broadly started offering pharmacogenomics. Certainly, they're doing the cancer part of it, but now the germline part, where they're looking for mental health disease starting to layer out into pediatrics. Now other areas are being developed more fully. And so that's an example of a place that's very proactive and going forward in that manner. You have a similar thing that's happened at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and they're now trying to layer it out to the other hospitals that are in their, their health system. Atrium Health out of Charlotte, Jay Patel and some of the other group there have started implementing initially in cancer, next in supportive care for cancer, and then now layering it out to many other areas. And then the Mayo system has done a good job of trying to have pharmacogenomics be available and to be very preemptive about the approach. And so 
there are probably many other examples that I forgot, and they'll be uh, mad at me for not mentioning their system. But it's been an exciting time as we see this thing move from a, kind of a niche area for only those people who are in the know to now more broad application, even for people who don't really understand genomics. And that's the beauty of it. We're talking in pharmacogenomics about drug safety. And you may not know a thing about the genome, but you understand if you need to use a lower dose or a higher dose, and you can respond from there. And so there's a, a lot more application coming as we see this uh, trotted out into the masses. It's particularly interesting hearing about the, the highly collaborative effort going on in the Netherlands. I'm wondering, will true pharmacogenomic clinical implementation require immediate integration to the electronic health record for collaboration between the pharmacist and the specialist? So the ideal would be that there's a system that would feed all the people who are wanting to be involved in or need to be involved in an individual patient's care. And the ideal system doesn't exist, but it would have it so that whether you're an outpatient or an inpatient, whether you're seeing a specialist or a generalist, whether you're seeing pharmacy or nursing or whoever, it would be readily accessible and would be standing guard for your optimal care. That may happen someday, but it is yet to happen anywhere on the face of this earth. I think that the, the approach that is more realistic is integration into the electronic health record but also integrating into the other records that are currently used. So you might have a uh, electronic health record, Cerner, Epic, whatever it might be in your particular institution. But pharmacy also has a pharmacy management electronic system that they use. Pathology has PathNet or some, some version that they use. Radiology has their own thing. They all feed into the uh, electronic medical record and interact with it, but they allow the specialist activities to occur in that way. And so I'm, I think that we're going to see some use of that where pathology and pharmacy working together between their aspects of electronic medical record so that they can get the testing right, they can get the action right, and then feed that forward into some aspect of the electronic medical record. And so it'll end up being maybe a two or a three-part process as opposed to just a one-size-fits-all approach. That sort of thing now allows steps to be taken without disrupting the entire electronic medical record system. And so this sort of thing is, is starting to happen. We're also seeing other approaches where you can have, use a, an app of some sort, usually a smart on fire or one of those types of, of uh, computer languages that will basically sit on top of the electronic medical record so that as you go in to prescribe, it can intervene, provide a pop-up box that says, try this drug, this dose, as opposed to it having to happen within the electronic medical record. From a functional standpoint, as a practitioner, you wouldn't even know the difference. But in terms of how it's written and constructed, it allows the big, hard-to-move electronic medical record to do its thing, while the more agile apps are being layered on, on top. And so we're seeing that start to happen now, and that's certainly making some serious progress. And then there are some movements out there to have the patient be more in control. The approaches, the one I've been involved with, full disclosure, is one called Pharmazam. We see other approaches that are likely going to be coming forward in, in the future. But it allows the patient to be in control of their drug information, pharmacogenetics, drug-drug interactions, et cetera, and then share it with their practitioners as needed. And the beauty of that 
is it allows them to put in the over-the-counter medicines, the minerals, the whatever else they might be taking that often don't get captured. And it also allows them to, if they see a specialist, to be able to immediately share it with them in the same way they can share it with their primary care physician, et cetera. As you get older, patients that are 55 and older, on average, will have eight different specialists that they see over the course of a, of a year. And so there is no electronic medical record that can feed all of those different places. Typically, you're going to need some other approach. And so one that where the patient is driving it, I think, is a really ex- an exciting approach that can serve this purpose. The patient's being tasked with being responsible for this anyway. Now it allows them to do it without having to go back to medical school or something like that. It's an exciting time as these are all applied. Are you seeing research studies currently combining pharmacogenomics and polygenic risk scores? And what would be the real benefit to academic and or community physicians? So for the last few years, there's been research on polygenic risk scores for disease risk of various types. And that's been very exciting and and certainly could be a, a way of reaching people that would not be obvious with our current tools. We're now starting to see some of these also happen for pharmacogenomics. One of the first studies in in heart failure is now in press and available in the literature, and and there's others that will likely be coming. And that's really an exciting development because we know some of the pharmacogenomics information. We know what to do in, in case of a patient that has a certain drug metabolizing variants, et cetera, but we don't really know all of their risk. And so a polygenic risk score may allow that to open up even further. From a practical level, I mean, if you're a, if you're a community physician and you get this information, right now, if, if you just give them a bunch of genomic information, there'll be a few of them that say, oh, great, thank you very much. And most of them will say, why have you just made my life harder? If you now feed it to them in some very practical terms, so maybe page two or three has all the details of the polygenic risk score, et cetera, but rather it says this person has a heightened risk of this adverse event or has a, a lower risk of this other adverse event. That allows them to immediately assimilate it into the way they practice medicine, not have to really change anything. You're going to get much better intake with that approach than if we try to make this super fancy and super different and super special. And so we're seeing some effort now to do very high quality science, but then bring it down to a very simple level. And so, you know, for example, one of the groups that I've worked with, it's basically taking a molecular report and coming up with a short executive summary that you can read in 30 seconds or less. And that can be used by a busy clinician going from room to room, whereas a full genomics report that we normally give is just not going to be digested in the proper way. And so, again, opportunities to bring in all this new science, especially polygenic risk scores looking so exciting, and to make it so that it is within the grasp of a community physician or an academic physician, neither of which may want to learn all that much about genomics. So my final question is, what excites you about genomics in the future and where do you see precision medicine in five to 10 years? One of the things that is exciting to me, and I've talked with some of the the folks about this recently, is this movement, what I call it a a movement from uh, portrait to landscape. We've been looking at individual genes with individual drugs individual genes with individual diseases and that sort of thing. And we still have a lot to learn about when a gene variant causes or doesn't cause a particular endpoint. But we are now at the point where we can start looking at panels and start to come up with rules for what do we do when we look across someone's entire genome? The idea that you have your entire genome done as soon as possible in your lifespan 
and have that available to help you with choices around drugs, choices around polygenic risk scores, choices around disease. That sort of information is very exciting. You're looking across the person, not only at rheumatic disease, not only at cardiology. And so that to me is a really exciting pivot that's undergoing. We're not leaving any of those behind. It just means that we have to be able to apply it more broadly. That's exciting to me. We also have the technology to do that. We can now sequence someone's genome in a very small amount of time for a reasonable price. You can have your whole genome done at clinical grade for less than the cost of a CT scan. And so the idea that you can get this information and apply it is really very exciting. And you can see you know, precision medicine starting to really take this up where they're not just it's not just for that one cardiologist that happens to be interested in it, but it's for the internist, it's for the primary care physician, it's for the person who's looking broadly across this patient. It's going to be exciting to see this all lay out. Well, that was quite an educational perspective on pharmacogenomics and the role it can play in clinical care. And it's exciting to hear that there seems to be significant progress being made in this area. Thank you very much, Howard, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. If you like today's show, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. We'll talk to you next time at the Illumina Genomics Podcast.